This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 366th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented and beautiful movie stars in the history of Hollywood. Over 40 years in the business, she has received an Emmy nomination, three Oscar nominations, and six Golden Globe nominations, winning one Globe. And she has been included on People Magazine's list of the 50 most beautiful people in the world a record six times twice appearing on the cover of the issue, including the first time it was published back in 1990. And though she now chooses to work far less frequently than she did in the past, when she does work, she is always terrific, and people always still sit up and take notice, sometimes even singing about her, as you may have heard, in Uptown Funk and Riptide. I'm talking, of course, about Michelle Pfeiffer. Over the course of our conversation, the 62-year-old and I discussed the moment when, as a 19-year-old working at a Vons supermarket in Orange County, she decided that she was going to become an actress. How she then moved to Los Angeles and began gaining traction after a stint in a cult in films such as 1983's Scarface, 1987's The Witches of Eastwick, 1988's Married to the Mob and Dangerous Liaisons, 1989's The Fabulous Baker Boys, and yes... 1992's Batman Returns, in which she played Catwoman. Why, in more recent years, she has taken years-long stints off from working, and what motivated her to return most recently in Azazel Jacobs's dramedy French Exit, which, pandemic permitting, will be in select theaters on February 12th, and in which she plays a widowed socialite whose fortunes take a turn for the worse, plus much more. And so, without further ado... Let's go to that conversation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This shit, that ice cold. Michelle fight for that white gold. This one for them hood girls. Them good girls. Straight masterpieces. Styling, violent, living it up in the city. Got Chuck's on with Saint Laurent. Gotta kiss myself. I'm so pretty. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's an honor to have you. And uh, on this podcast, we just kind of try to give our listeners a sense of how our favorite people got to be where they are. They're just every step of the way, the big steps along the way. And and so obviously the first thing I've got to ask you is just if you can talk about where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living. <laughs> Well, I was actually born in Santa Ana, California, Southern California, but I was uh, raised in uh, Midway City, also in Orange County, born and raised. And uh, so my mother didn't work. She was, you know, she just, she cared for the family and my father was in heating and air conditioning. Now, I tried to you know, always prepped by reading everything I can find going back to the beginning about our guests. And I was very surprised to learn that in your own description, you were sort of a bad kid. I've seen you, I've seen you use words like delinquent and black sheep of the family and uh, neighbors didn't want their kids playing with me. Uh, what was going on? What were you rebelling against? You know, I wasn't a terrible kid. I just, I, I did like to break the rules. I didn't like to be told what to do. Um, I, you know, I, I had a, a, yeah, I mean, I do have sort of a rebellious spirit, I guess. And I was sassy and I was always, um, you know, talking back to my parents that got me into a lot of trouble, but you know, I don't think that, um, you know, you know, and looking back, I definitely was the black sheep of, of the family and that, you know, I, I was just always the one getting into trouble. I smoked cigarettes. I would go out and, you know, not come home until way after my curfew, you know, that sort of thing. And I guess, though, at the same time, it seems like you must have been a, a decent student because you graduated a year early, right? Yeah, I was I was a pretty decent student. I could have been a better student, but um, I think I also I, I sort of I don't know. I, I feel in some ways it was it had more to do with me um, figuring out how to work the system. Um, you know, I I I sort of ditched school a lot. I wasn't always there, but I knew how to get myself back in. I don't know how I managed to graduate in three years with honors. I have to tell you, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like there weren't too many classes that you were passionate about, but one of them was theater. Mm -hmm. Was that something that you had always been kind of, you know, had, had you always been curious about acting or was that just sort of a freebie class in your mind that led you to sign up for it? Well, when I was little, when I was very little, I remember putting on plays in the backyard and charging the neighbors 10 cents to come see them. <laughs> uh, so I was also an entrepreneur, very, very young. Right. <laughs> um, so I had the, I guess I had the acting bug early on. And I remember watching uh, 
old black and white movies late at night. And again, I wasn't supposed to be up, but I was all by myself. And I would watch these old, I guess they were probably like old Betty Davis movies. I couldn't tell you exactly what they were, but I'm guessing Mm -hmm. they were sort of Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, you know, um, Barbara Stanwyck. And I remember watching thinking, I can do that. Why did I think that? I have no idea. Um, But I, I didn't grow up ever believing that 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 was a reality and um I thought I was going to be a stenographer for a while I went to stenography school for about a year after about a year I I decided that really wasn't right for me and I was working at a supermarket for a number of years I had worked I started out as a box girl and then I worked my way up and then I was a stock clerk. And then I worked my way up to the cash register. I was not very good at that. (laughs) Um, I could just never seem to balance my cash register at the end of the day. (laughs) I tried so hard, Um, but I was always just five or 10 cents off. And finally, I really kind of in a, in a fit of frustration, I, one day at work, I asked myself, I remember the day and I asked myself, what is it you really want to do in life? And if somebody could just hand it to you, let's pretend you didn't have to work for it. Let's pretend, you know, this was um, actually a reality uh, or possible. Uh, it was acting. And I sort of surprised myself. I didn't really expect that answer to come to me. And it did. Because had you gotten particularly good feedback when you'd done theater in high school? Well, um, yeah. And I took the, well, I took the theater class really just for credits. And mm-hmm. uh, I al- I always kind of thought the theater people were a little odd. <laughs> and um, so I, I think it was just sort of a, a last minute, maybe it was the thing that was open still, you know, and that I could get mm-hmm. in. And I was probably late in signing up for my classes. Anyway, I ended up, I ended up feeling right at home with all of those oddball people and I loved it. And I loved the teacher who taught the course. And she did say to me, I remember one day I did something in class and she said to me, I I think you have, what did she say? I think you have talent or I think you should stick with something like that. Mm -hmm. And of course she doesn't remember me at all in the class, (laughs) but she had a very big impact on me, of course, obviously. Teachers are really, you know, confidence can take you a long way in, yeah. de- in developing a real skill for something. And I remember when I was in third grade, I had a teacher tell me and I did an art project and she told my parents that she felt that I had talent. And I never, you know, I never forgot it. And since then, art has been really important to me. And it's sort of, you know, it's sort of in and out of my life. But I'm always, I always go back to painting. And I think it's honestly, if it, you know, I don't know if I would have done that had it not been for that one, that one teacher. Mm -hmm. So there, just to contextualize that moment at the supermarket. People in LA will know Vons. Uh, You're 19. You have this kind of epiphany that this is not what you want to be doing. And so there is still, you know, there are probably a lot of people who work at Vons or similar jobs who would love to 
become a working actor, but there are a few steps in between. I mean, from headshots to an agent to actually learning how to act. And so for you, can you just connect the dots for, I guess, I guess you must've moved to LA. I, not initially, I, for, well, the be- in the very beginning, I told, I was embarrassed. I thought it was really arrogant for me to think that I could, you know, become an actor and actually get work. And I, of course, was, I, I mostly thought I was probably going to fail. And, but I remember thinking, well, I'm young enough. If I fail, I fail. I, I'll do something else. So I told my hairdresser and he was the only one I told. I somehow felt that he wouldn't judge me. Mm-hmm. And he one day showed up at my house. He said, well, what are you doing? I want to come over. I want to bring something. And he came over with an uh, application for a beauty pageant. And I nearly threw him out of the house. I said, <laughs> I'm like, you know, this is just not something I would have ever done. And he said, wait, hear me out. And he said, there is um, a judge who has no, has been known to um, sign uh, people from these pageants. And so that's what I did. I signed with the agent and that was my first commercial agency. And then, uh, so I did that for about a year and then I, then I was introduced to a theatrical agent. So for about the first year I commuted back and forth, I worked at Bonds and um, auditioned. And then uh, after about a year of that, and I did a couple of jobs, I, I moved up to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Well, so in LA, the, just to, you know, the, probably the, the first few years there can't be, can't have been a total walk in the park. And I've read that, you know, you're, you were taking acting classes. I read with, I don't know if this was all read at the beginning, but um, some people who have come up in other episodes, Milton Katselis and Geraldine Page and people like that. So um, at the same time, I read that you, I guess, and this, I, I, I don't know if I've understood exactly what was going on, but there was, you kind of got like roped into a weird thing as well, right? The cult, the kind of sort of quote, the cult kind of situation. Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Um, yeah, it, it, it was, I didn't, I just, I knew the, I, I kind of knew the people, but not really well who owned the, I was in a little guest house that I was living in and it was up in the hills in Laurel Canyon. And, but I didn't really have, I didn't have any friends and they were older and, so I did a lot of classes to kind of fill up my time, you know, dance and voice and that kind of thing. And I was taking acting workshops and I was introduced to this couple who they did, uh, they did sort of physical training and they had a diet and it was very, they used a lot of sort of, um, it was a bit of brainwashing techniques that went on. And of course it was a lot of money, money, you know, you don't really have when you're starting out. And I, I think I saw them for close to a year and I didn't live there. It wasn't a big commune. It was, they just sort of worked out of their, their home and saw people privately. And then, uh, and that was for about, for about a year until I met and well, and then I was kind of, I was wanting to leave, but I, 
I was really struggling with it, and then I met my first husband, who's a lovely man, Peter Horton, and he, as it was a very interesting coincidence, or as life would have it, um, I don't know that it was a coincidence at all, he was doing, he was starting a project on the Moonies, and he was meeting, doing, doing his research, and he was meeting with a deprogrammer, and I went with him. And I had started kind of the process of trying to leave, you know, and struggling. Anyway, so we're having this lunch with this deprogrammer and he's talking and he's going on and I'm listening and I'm listening. And the, and after about an hour, I realize he's talking about me. See, I, I never thought I was in any sort of a, a cult type situation. That never mm-hmm. occurred to me. And as he's talking, though, I realize that's exactly the kind of situation I've been in. And what Peter and I have been kind of going through is this very sort of clumsy deprogramming together. Mm. And so that was a very opportune meeting for me. And the, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. And it kind of, I just, it really helped me to understand what I'd been through, what I was going through, and gave me courage that, okay, I'm not crazy, and they're crazy, and and I need to get out of here. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess once you did, it's, you know, that's when, I don't know if it's coincidental again or, or not, but I mean, it seems like that's when maybe things started getting going a bit, because you had said in one of the things I read that up to that point, and, and not up to the point when you left the, the cult, but just, let's say, pre-Grease 2, quote, I was playing bimbos and cashing in on my looks, close quote. And then Grease 2 comes along, and there's 500 people going out for it, and there's a lot of hype heading into it. Um, and I guess that would be, whether you know, the movie was not a huge success, but for you, I guess it was probably the first major job, right? Oh, it was huge for me. It was huge. It was terrifying. And, and nobody was more surprised than me uh, that I actually was offered that role. Uh, I couldn't really dance. I wasn't a singer. (laughs) Um, so I'm not sure how that happened, but it did. And it was very long kind of, you know, um, auditioning process, but you know, sometimes though, you know, there were a couple of, I remember I sort of, after the, I think it was, I guess it was the first I had done, I, I had, I had done some, some smaller acting parts where my looks didn't have anything to do with it. And even, even before that, I was always looking for those opportunities and, you know, it was all about, you know, your, your acting real. And it was all about just having some footage to show people a different side of you, you know, that, um, they wouldn't otherwise think of you for. And I remember I did a little television movie called the children that nobody wanted. My very first film was called falling in love again. And I played Susanna York as a young girl and I did an accent and that was my I think that was my first movie. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course nobody really saw it. Um, <laughs> but, um, so, you know, you're kind of always, when you start out sort of straddling that, okay, I need to work, I need to make money, I need to pay the rent. And then, um, 
So it's, for me, it was always sort of waiting as long as I could. And then kind of intermittent, there would be these, these opportunities for me to show another color. Um, and then Grease 2 was definitely the film that I guess put me on the map, as they yeah. say. Well, so apparently, because so Grease 2 comes out in 82, Scarface came out in 83, but apparently De Palma had, <laughs> from what I've read, he had seen and not particularly loved Grease 2 and wasn't even interested in auditioning you. But then I guess Marty Bregman, the producer, says you got to reconsider. You go in and you have an audition with with Al Pacino, which for a person in the, in her early twenties must have been a little intimidating, but the, but and and I guess you thought it didn't go well. Well, you know there had been nothing in my portfolio to um, honestly give them confidence that I could play this part and that I could honestly hold the screen with you know people like Robert Loggia and Al Pacino and you know, all of these other great actors that were in the film. And so that's um, reasonable. And my first audition actually was with Brian De Palma and the casting director. And it actually was one of those auditions that just happened to go really well. And that just happens sometimes. And I saw him sort of sit up and take notice and was sort mm -hmm. of stunned <laughs> and then, and then it started to disintegrate from there because, <laughs> you know, and so I think he, he actually was interested after that audition. And then it was, yes, I had to then come back and audition with Al and which I did. And I think that was also in, in an office and maybe Marty was there. Yes. I think maybe Marty was at that reading. Yes. And even though I didn't feel particularly good about that reading and um, neither did Al, I don't think. And But I do think Marty at that, my, if my memory serves me, which it doesn't always, <laughs> um, it was after that one where I think Brian wanted to cross me off the list and Marty said, you know what, there was something between them and I don't think we should cross her off yet. Mm -hmm. So then it was, they were auditioning a lot of people and then they flew me to New York and then there were, you know, I mean, they were considering people like Glenn Close and, all, you know, again, just all of these amazing accomplished actresses. And I was just getting more and more terrified. And it's the absolute worst thing for actors is when that fear grips you. And, um, that's where I was. And with each, each time getting up, I just got worse and worse. And after about a month or so, they finally officially said, okay, we're not going to consider you. You can go away. Yeah. And I was disappointed, but honestly, at, at that point, I was so tortured that I was relieved to at least mm -hmm. to have it be over. <laughs> Right. And then about a month later, they called me to come in and screen test. And I was just like, no, I can't <laughs> do this. Um, so I showed, I remember showing up on the day and honestly, I, at that point, I just, I didn't, I don't know that I even cared anymore. I mean, or I certainly never thought, I, I, I just thought I'm just going to get up and be bad again. I'm not going to get this part. Let's just get this over. And again, sort of that letting go 
enabled me to actually do a really good screen test. And was there something with like cutting Pacino? With I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it was the restaurant scene at the end and I sort of stood up and flung my hands and the dishes went flying and breaking everywhere. And it was cut and then there was blood everywhere and they all run, rushed over to me and they're checking my body and there was, they just couldn't find a cut. And then we looked over at Al and he was the one who was cut. Oh man! <laughs> Do you think that was? That I was thought, the end? well, that's it. I'm not gonna, you know. But it, I think the, I think it really impressed him. I think it was actually the thing that got me the part. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Well, so obviously, uh, you know that movie again raised your profile a lot, and uh, you certainly made an entrance in that in that glass elevator and good reviews and and big movie. But I, I wonder, just from things that you've said, if you also were a bit conflicted about that kind of a character in the sense that – just going to read back one one quote from uh, where this was an example of, of – at times, I'm not sure it's the whole experience, but of of style and, and looks being – in some cases, prioritize over substance. You said here, quote, I was objectified if there was one hair out of place, dot, dot, dot. I remember once I had a bruise or something on my leg and he, De Palma, made me go back and take off my pantyhose and have makeup put on because he could see an imperfection, close quote. On the one hand, it's it's got to be awesome to, for the first time, be in a movie of that magnitude. On the other hand, it seems like this was something that for years forward even you kind of grappled with just you know what is my function in a in a movie right okay you know i actually have to take issue with this statement and i think that is not a quote from me in terms of me feeling objectified in scarface part of the not having a hair out of place and the perfection was part of the fragility of the character and it is true. I had a bruise on my leg and, you know, I did have to go put some makeup on it and cover it because Brian didn't, he wanted her to be perfect so that we could see that perfection crumble. And, you know, I think that, you know, this is, this is a woman, you know, and maybe this is where that came from. The character was being objectified mm -hmm. and that was her role. And that is the tragedy of this character and women like her and women who find themselves in this position. You know, my mother, and sometimes you can do more for women and more about bringing attention to this kind of dynamic by actually presenting the audience with what is as opposed mm -hmm. to getting up on a soapbox and preaching to them. Right. And, you know, like this is a woman and you understand, you understand the allure and how there before the grace of God go I and how she found herself in this position. And then you are stuck. And then how do you get out? And remember, in the end, she does leave him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, which is not always the story with women like this. So I, you know, and I, I remember like my, you know, you know, and I think I always think back about my mother who did not have a career 
And she, I think, always regretted not having a career. And of course, she was, you know, raising four children and taking care of a household. And that's what women did. Um, and she didn't have help and she didn't have nannies and she didn't have housekeepers and, and she didn't, and she had a really tight budget. Mm-hmm. And cause you were one of how many kids? Four kids. And it was really important to her that I have a career. And she always used to say to me, shell, I don't, no matter what you do, I, you know, before you get married, you need to be on your own and you need to learn how to support yourself. And I think that it's one of the things I always tell young women. I think it's really important because you you go into, look, when you're in love, you're in love and you go into relationships and you go into marriages um, doughy-eyed and you think this is going to last forever. Well, it doesn't always last forever. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot about the women of my mother's generation who I'm getting a little bit off subject at the moment, but you know, they signed a certain deal in life because that's what women did. You know, they got married and they, they, um, had a family and they, they sacrificed a lot of their hopes and dreams, perhaps, or if they even dared dream them during that time, Mm -hmm. then it kind of all changed on them. And then all of a sudden the women's live came and the equal rights movement came and right in the middle of them sort of, you know, kind of, following through with the deal they made. And, and so, um, and then all of a sudden their contribution wasn't as worthy and, or as respected. Mm-hmm. Well, and it does seem like you took that to heart early on in, in your life, because I mean, not only were you working, but I know, you know, you were starting your family, whether or not a, a man was going to be there, you know, different uh, husband was going to be there, like different things that were ahead of their time in a way as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, and you know, again, this is my independent streak that always got me into trouble when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think it's the thing that has really served me well, you know, as an adult and, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. knew I wanted to have a family and, um, I, at that time wasn't in a relationship that, you know, I just wasn't in a relationship and I was in my early thirties and I thought, well, you know, I don't want to just get into a relationship because I want to start a family. That is not smart. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's start a family. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which I did. Wow. And it all, uh, it kind of all, I guess it was, I was amazed to read just the timeline that was it just two weeks later you met your husband. So it's all pretty, uh, it's amazing how things work out. But meanwhile, with this period after Scarface, it's interesting because you were working a lot uh, and movies that people saw and enjoyed, Tequila Sunrise, Sweet Liberty, a lot of different stuff. But it seems like it wasn't actually until four years later with Witches of Eastwick that things really kind of took off for your career. It's like, you know, Scarface was a, a, it seems like a nice opportunity, but it didn't immediately elevate the kinds of opportunities you were getting immensely, right? Yeah, that's true. And so with witches, uh, the the backstory there was kind of interesting because one of these long ago articles, I guess you, you, you were speculating that it came out of just literally venting to a casting director at Warner Brothers who, well, uh, she was a friend of yours that, you know, where are the roles for women? And, and then maybe I guess she heard about witches of Eastwick. That's weird. I have no idea where that quote came from either. No, somebody like Wally Nasita. Oh yeah. Is that 
Well, yeah, Wally was a huge, huge fan of mine. She was always bringing me in. I love Wally Nasita, but I don't remember having that conversation <laughs> with her. <laughs> All right. No, it's, I mean, it's a long time ago, maybe. And things. And that was another reported. really incredibly laborious and lengthy auditioning process too. You know, I just, that just didn't happen. It was auditioning and auditioning and. Well, cause George Miller wanted you, right? But he had to fight. Um, trying to remember that. There was something about you being, coming in to read for the part that you thought was yours and then being asked to read with other, read opposite other people who were reading for that same part. Well, yes. And that was really <laughs> awkward. Um, <laughs> I did my screen test cause we were screen testing and putting people on film. And, and after my screen test I was walking back to my trailer and somebody came up to me and told me that I had the part. They were like, congratulations. And then, they, and then they asked me, could I stay and read with the other actors who were still auditioning for my part? <laughs> And I just felt really bad, you know, I felt like this is so, but they didn't know, they didn't obviously know that. So, and you know, right. who knows, honestly, the way the pendulum kept swinging on that one, <laughs> I maybe really didn't even have the part, you know, and they were still kind of like, I don't know, testing things out because, <laughs> I, I, you know. Well, cause that was one where I guess that was one of these that you hear about where they're writing the script as it goes along and all of that. Right. Yeah. That was not, it's never really a good idea to start a film without a finished script. <laughs> Every time I've done that, it's just turned out to be, you know, a stressful shoot. Right. So the movie though does, you know, comes out, makes a lot of money. And I gather that that's maybe when things really began to change just in terms of the impact of your career on your day-to-day -day life? Is that when things like paparazzi and all of that entered the picture and, and made life different for you? Um, it started to heat up a little bit after Greece too, but then not, you know, then not really. But yeah, I do remember it was really witches when things had a major shift and I left and I was out of the country. I was in Europe and the film was released in the States. And then I came back and all of a sudden it seemed overnight I was being recognized and my profile had just sort of changed overnight. And how did you, how'd you react to that? That's not well, I don't, not yeah. well, not well. <laughs> I mean, I was fine, you know, but, uh, but I didn't, I didn't, it scared me. It really mm -hmm. scared me. I, I, the people chasing me and people sneaking around and aunt feeling ambushed all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm an incredibly private person. And it, it just, it really, it frightened me. And I, um, it still frightens me, honestly. You know, I don't, mm -hmm. I think I'm better. I'm much, much better at it, but I also know how to avoid it. And I, so, um, I, that's sort of really how I've, I've dealt with it is, um, I have, I know places to avoid and I know mm -hmm. if I, if I step into certain situations, 
um, I just sort of braced myself and, Mm -hmm. um, but I used to run from them, which is really Mm -hmm. stupid. It's like running from a bear, you know, (laughs) it's like, no, you don't run from a bear because they just get excited. Right. And, um, that's kind of how they are, the paparazzi. (laughs) Right. Well, and eventually, I don't know how soon after that, but I know you, I think that may have been a contributing factor to just actually relocating from the belly of the beast, right? I mean, you're not, you don't live in LA. No. And it, it was just getting really bad. And, um, I remember, you know, when I was younger, it just seemed if you had something newsworthy happening, if you were in a scandal, which I typically wasn't, Mm -hmm. if you had a film coming out and you were doing a lot of press and so you were on everybody's mind, you know, you could kind of gauge it. It's sort of like how you used to be able to gauge traffic on 405, right? It's like, (laughs) you know, there was rush hour and then all of a sudden it became all the time. You know, there's no rush hour. It's just traffic all the time. Well, that's, I remember a few years before we moved, it just seemed like it was random. It was just all the time. And I, so it just got to be, it just got to be too much, really, honestly. Mm -hmm. I, Mm -hmm. I just got tired of living in a fishbowl. I didn't want my children to grow up living in a fishbowl. I didn't like being followed when they were in the car. So up until that point, I was really able to protect them most of the time. Mm -hmm. And it was getting Mm -hmm. to a point where I I was beginning to realize that I, I only, I didn't have control of it anymore. Right. Well, what I hope we can do is if I can, you know, you've, you've given so many memorable performances that I can't, I can't hit on all of them, but I wonder if I can hit on some of them and just ask you for sort of like, uh, just a, the, a thought or two about, about a bunch of them and building up to the present, of course. I mean, after Witches of Eastwick, the next year, you're the mob wife and married to the mob, Jonathan Demi, who actors seem to really enjoy working with. And it seems like for you, it might've been an opportunity to show that you, had more range than maybe people had given you credit for before, because here it's, you know, it's comedic. It's, uh, you don't look like you'd look before physically in, in the part. I don't know. Just, uh, it seems like that was an interesting choice. I was so honored that Jonathan asked me to play that part because there had really been nothing in my, my portfolio, uh, in my body of work that would lead him to believe that I could play this, you know, mob wife from New Jersey, you know, (laughs) this Italian mob wife. And I just am so grateful. And I don't know what it was about that part, but I felt so comfortable playing Mm -hmm. her. And I loved that accent and it came easily to me. And, um, I just loved the movie and I loved, I mean, I just loved working with him. I loved the whole process and it did it. I think it was the thing that really upset the apple cart and where it confused people. Now they didn't kind of know where to pigeonhole me. And so, uh, I think that was a major turning point for me because I've always felt more like a character actor. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that, same year another movie was released that I think was shot after you had finished shooting Married to the Mob because I believe Stephen Frears when he was 
deciding what to do with dangerous liaisons wasn't from one thing I'd read, wasn't sure about casting you, but Demi showed him a rough cut of married to the mob and that apparently sealed the deal. And I just wonder you've called that movie. Obviously it's, um, you know, period you're, you're, it's a character who's sort of in a bad spot. You've called the making of the movie quote unquote, a painful experience. Why was that? No, I don't think I ever said that, that it was painful. Um, <laughs> um, but, it, but it was challenging for sure, you know, but it was a good challenge. It was a good challenging. Um, it was hard, but yes. And it's true that it is very true that Jonathan Demi, not, he brought him in. We were still, were we still shooting? Maybe not. I think we might've still been shooting. He brought him in to the editing room and showed him footage. Film was not done. And that really was the thing that I think clinched the deal. Cause I don't think, let's see, did I even, Oh, I did have to read for that. I did read for that. I think I did a reading and it wasn't so good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was Jonathan showing him the film. Uh, and even then I think he was still not quite convinced. <laughs> because then I remember we went to when we were, so I was done filming Married to the Mob. And then I was in, um, where were we? I was either in London or Paris, but we were doing the makeup and hair tests. And I was kind of goofing around and, you know, everybody else was really serious and they were all in character. And I was just, I don't know. I just thought we're looking at hair and makeup. I didn't realize I should be in character. <laughs> and he got nervous again about me. So, um, then I had to redo my makeup and hair test. And I, then I was like, okay, I'll be serious. And so then he was, he relaxed, but, um, <laughs> but the film, look, it wasn't a huge budget. It was one of those really ambitious shooting schedules, mm. uh, which means there's really way too much work to accomplish in the given time. And, uh, it was middle of winter and we were out in the, it was cold. It was cold. The weather, it was just, and in those costs, it was just really, but, but the work was challenging in the best possible way. So there's like, you know, there's good hard and then there's not so good hard. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, it's just amazing how much you packed in year after year, you know, in, in that period. And then I know you, you've pasted a, a, a little more in more recent years, but here it's one after the other, after the other, the next year is the fabulous Baker boys where it's a first time director, Steve Cloves. And so I was certainly curious, you know, if that was something that gave you any pause going in, but then let me just read the opening lines for our listeners of Roger Ebert's review quote. This is literally the beginning. There is a scene in The Fabulous Baker Boys where Michelle Pfeiffer, wearing a slinky red dress, uncurls on top of a piano while singing Making Whoopi. The rest of the movie is also worth the price of admission. <laughs> Close quote. <laughs> so just uh, here was one of the first times that you actually kind of leaned into the fact that, you know, it, you are a, a beautiful, glamorous person. I mean, not everybody can do that. And so I just wonder, you know, again, this is a call girl who wants to become a lounge singer. It's you between the the Bridges brothers and something like that scene. Just take me back. Do you know in the moment that it's something special? No. In fact, I was terrified. I thought I was just going to make a fool of myself. First of all, I had I had I don't I had such confidence in Steve because I actually knew him socially for many years. And I had wanted to do that script five years ago 
and they couldn't get it made with me, basically. And it sort of slipped through my fingers. And I don't know what happened to it for five years, but then it came back to me. And um, we had Michael back. You know, the thing about first-time directors, we started with a really solid script, and we they surrounded Steve with just really solid people. And, you know, we had Michael Bauhaus shooting it. And so we had a tremendous amount um, of support. And uh, so I was just thrilled. And when it came time to do this scene, I remember, I don't know, like the week before, I'm sort of looking ahead at the next week's work. And I thought, wait a minute. And things just register, you know, you, they just don't, and it just registered that I, I wait, I'm going to get, I'm going to stand on top of a piano and sing. <laughs> this is the corniest thing anyone has ever asked me to do. This is, I'm going to look so stupid. And I talked to Steve about it. I'm like, really, Steve, you, re-? this is like on the day. I'm like, you really, you don't want me to stand on top of the piano. He said, trust me, trust me. If it's stupid, it will not end up in the movie. And I did. And he was right. And it was fine, but it was, uh, it took a lot of, uh, courage and a lot of trust. Yeah. Well, so after that movie, this is The Guardian now saying that you were, quote, the biggest female film star in the world, close quote. And then you did something that seems sort of surprising to me, just given the fact that you'd never formally trained as an actor, you'd never done stage work professionally, and yet you go and bite off Shakespeare in the Park with Joe Papp. And I just, I admire that. And I wonder what, was it just that you now were looking to kind of push yourself to do something that you hadn't done or what was that about? Yeah, I wanted to, sh- you know, I don't know what it is about me. I'm always just, I, I gravitate toward the things that frighten me um, in mm. terms of my work. I'm always looking for a challenge and I was terrified to do that every day on the way to work. I would actually pray to get into a car accident. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wouldn't have to go on stage. Um, uh, yeah, it was really, it was really scary. And, um, I, I actually think I scared myself a little bit too much, you know, with that one, but <laughs> fortunately it was only a month. So. Right. <laughs> All right. So 91 is Frankie and Johnny. You're back with Pacino. And then 92 is a really, interesting year because you did two things that I don't think could or you were in two movies that couldn't be more different and yet both were successful in their own ways obviously Catwoman in Batman Returns for Tim Burton and then also Love Field this little indie movie a, a housewife beautician who's obsessed with the Kennedys and goes on this kind of road trip and it ended up I know it was like stuck in movie hell for a while because of the Orion bankruptcy, but in the end you get an Oscar nomination in the same year that you're playing Catwoman or, or for a movie in the same year that you were playing Catwoman. Just, um, that seems like a quite a interesting year as you, you know, in the grand scheme of things. I just have always grabbed I just, and I remember, I remember when I signed on to do Batman, I remember some of the response responses were, why are you doing Batman? That's such an unexpected turn for you to be doing right now. And 
I was so excited. I don't know that I've ever been so excited to play part. <laughs> I grew up with Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my, and, and in fact, you know, Annette Benning was initially supposed to do that part. And when I found out, I hadn't even been considered for the part. It had just gone straight to her. I didn't even know there was going to be a Catwoman. And mm. I was really upset. <laughs> and then um, she fell out for the best possible reason. She was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it came my way. And uh, I was just thrilled and um, to do that. Aside from the cat suit, right? I guess it's not the most comfortable. No, no, not the most. No, not at all, actually. Yeah. Okay. And then, so just next year is with Scorsese, who in Age of Innocence, he, he, here's a quote that I think people should know about. He said that you are, quote, an actress who could portray inner conflict with her eyes and face better than any other film star of her generation, close quote. Uh, you're with Daniel Day-Lewis, beautifully filmed with all those sweeping shots of costumes and all of that. And yet I imagine here the, the kind of, this was maybe with the possible exception of dangerous liaisons, maybe some of the trickiest just to do period language cannot must not be easy no it's not it's uh but i kind of i kind of have a memory that that dialogue i feel like that dialogue wasn't quite as stilted as some of it can be Mm -hmm. but but that i but that could be completely wrong um but it is, it is a challenge. It's, you know, you, you, you want to sort of, you have to nod to the period. I mm-hmm. mean, you can't sort of sit around with your legs up and, you know, slouch in a chair and, um, <laughs> cause people didn't, didn't really do that. Um, yeah, I, doing, doing, um, period dialogue and it is always challenging. I think dangerous liaisons was really challenging mm-hmm. more so mm-hmm. I feel like than the age of innocence. There's certain, I sort of have a memory of them really just lifting things, dialogue straight from the book. Right, right. I guess one of the, another kind of just interesting thing that stands out if anybody's sort of studying your career is that in that, I guess, mid nineties maybe is when you and a a friend started a production company and you guys did some some very good movies. I know One Fine Day was one that maybe just because of the release date didn't get as appreciated as it should have been or or stuff like that. But just wondered what that what what sort of led to the decision at that point. Now sort of like I think everybody starts a production company, but it was not as common to do that and I just wonder if that was because you were looking to looking to have more control over something like or or looking for something that you weren't getting without one. It was actually to sort of support opportunities that were kind of coming my way. And I was getting books in galley form. I was getting material really early on. And I was in, in some way and being offered producer credit if, you know, they sort of, you know, will offer you that sometimes. Um, and uh, if they feel like you've really contributed in a big way to actually getting it off the ground and getting it greenlit. Um, and so it, it seemed, it it seemed to me that if I was being put in that position, I should, you know, I may as well, um, 
start a company that could really support me, where I could really mm-hmm. have a producer who was working and really helping to sift through material. And, um, you know, that's one of the great things about having a production company is you get material early on. And then though, I, so that was for a number of years and that was wonderful. And then when I started to have a family mm-hmm. and I started to work less, it didn't really make sense anymore for me to continue Yeah. I want to ask you just really briefly about a few, you know, there's a lot of bullshit online. I don't know if it, if everything is true that I read, but there were some roles that apparently, I mean, you were probably offered everything. And so I just wonder if, if it's true or not that some of these were ones that you were in the mix for at one point and then didn't decide to do for whatever reason. But, um, I'm just going to zoom through and, you know, true or false, basically, if that's all right, like pretty woman. True. Bugsy? True. Silence of the Lambs? True. That one, I think you, you've you said, you don't have many regrets, but that was one that you wanted to, you wish. My regret about that is, and I think about that one a lot, is I loved working with Jonathan so much, and I never got another opportunity to do that, and I always wanted another opportunity to do that. And mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, I know that my reasons why... And I think they were legitimate, but mm-hmm. that's the one I'm not really, I'm not really quite. And by the way, you know, a lot of these films turned out amazing. Like I loved Pretty Woman. I loved Silence of the Lambs. And in fact, all of these films that you're probably going to mention, I loved <laughs> some of them. Some of them, it's, it's just because it's a conflict with something else. Yeah. Um, it's timing. And it's not necessarily that you didn't want to do that particular project. Right. Thelma and Louise. Yes. And that's one where I was producing Love Field. Yes. And they were happening at the same time. And I just, I simply couldn't do them both. I loved Thelma and Louise. Loved, loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Which one would you, you would have been uh, Gina Davis? He wanted me for Louise. Okay. Basic Instinct. Yeah. Lorenzo's Oil? That actually, no. Okay. That's not true. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle? No, was not offered that. Almost done. Casino? Yeah, but I was pregnant <laughs> with my son. Okay, that's a good, that's an excused absence. <laughs> uh, Evita? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Double Jeopardy? I don't know about that one. Okay. So coming back to excellent ones that you did do going forward after that, uh, what lies beneath with Zemeckis, I guess this was a very sort of Hitchcockian kind of thing. Had you maybe just cause that was a different genre than you'd really worked in before. I was really excited to, yeah, I hadn't done that genre. I loved, grew up. I loved, I was obsessed with scary movies and obviously I've already mentioned that I like being scared And, um, just a huge fan of Bob Zemeckis, super excited to work with him and with Harrison. I am Sam the next year, 2001 with Sean Penn. Mm -hmm. I love that script and, you know, such a huge admirer of Sean's work. I just thought it was a very, very special project. And then I think one of I, one of my favorites of yours is the next year, White Oleander, with uh, sort of this domineering mother and uh, the it, it, 
I don't know, I guess, uh, and that was, I think the last one before for a bit of a hiatus, just, um, what went into that movie and then the decision to, uh, basically go off for, I think about five years. <laughs> You're being kind when you say domineer. She was the killer. Okay. The mother was a killer in white oleander. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I loved the book. I just mm-hmm. loved the book. So yeah, I think, you know, and I think those films were films. You could see that my kids were young. I could still work. Wasn't in every scene. I mean, I could still kind of take them with me wherever, whether I was on location um, and take them to work with me. And then they got, you know, then they started having their own routines and they were in mm-hmm. school and I didn't want to disrupt their lives in that way. And so, uh, and then we moved and uh, it just, and then that was such a huge undertaking and I completely underestimated what it meant to relocate that way. Mm-hmm. We didn't know anybody or anything about where we were and it was so strange And so kind of, you know, getting everyone settled and it took a lot of energy and time and focus. And, and I was still kind of reading things, but there just wasn't really anything that for me warranted going to work. And then before I knew it, honestly, five years had gone by. I didn't realize actually it had been that long. (laughs) Well, and, and I mean, I, I, know that there was, again, I think from 13 to 2013 to 2017, you know, just before your, your kids were going off to college, a similar period where you, you, it was sort of similar hiatus. And I just wonder when you come back from something like that, like you had said something when you came back in 07, I think the first thing was I could never be your woman. And then right after that, uh, hairspray and, and Sherry, which is great. And, but just that when you come back from something like that, do you, is it like stepping right back into an old pair of shoes or is it, does it take, is it an adjustment period? Do you feel rusty when you come back? I, I felt a little rusty. I did. Interesting. But I also remember, cause I could never be your woman. I was really jet lagged. I also hadn't <laughs> slept. So I'm not sure how much of it was that. And I was really discombobulated. So, I mean, it didn't take me long to kind of find my footing again, but yeah, it's not like riding a bike. Interesting. Interesting. And, um, and then when you came back after the, that second hiatus I mentioned, when your kids, I guess, went off to school, you didn't, you, you dove right into the deep end with uh mother <laughs> with Aronofsky. I mean, that is uh that's some heavy stuff. And, uh, but you were great. And, and I know murder in the Orient express and then wizard of lies, I think all in the very same short amount of time within a year, I think. And just as a, uh, Final one before I ask you about French Exit. The another one that I think was kind of criminally underappreciated was that uh, Where's Kara in 2018, which I just wonder. You know, the people who saw it, I think, really admired it. It maybe didn't get a terrific rollout, but I just is that one that I think you should feel particularly proud of. Is it one that you're also uh, very happy with? Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just think I, I, yeah, I just don't think, I think people just didn't really see it, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, so this leads up to 
a movie that most people are going to get to see in February, but it's starting to roll out on the film festival circuit, and it's really interesting, and you've gotten some incredible reviews for it, and that is, of course, French Exit, this widowed socialite whose fortunes take a turn for the worse. Uh, and I just wonder, you know, there's if we get any further into the logline, which I don't necessarily want to do, it's an unusual, very unusual story, some weird uh, stuff going on. And I just wonder what particularly or what most drew you to it. Well, I, God, I just love Patrick's writing, Patrick DeWitt's writing. And I love, I thought this was a very, very, very unusual piece. You know, it's, it's a very special piece of material. It just doesn't come across that often. Uh, Francis is a very complex character and very kind of multi-layered. And, you know, I think it's just this world that's filled with these oddball characters and all of them feeling all of these kind of disparate people from different worlds who are kind of in, 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 in some ways reaching out for some sort of human connection and find themselves together and in, in a very unexpected way. And, um, yeah, it's just, it was just unusual. Yeah, and there's a lot, uh, a lot going on beneath the surface. I think it's just interesting. It these this mother and son wind up in France. Her name's Frances Price. I think it's not. I, I, it's interesting that Frances within her name and a sense of, uh, the husband's name is Frank. Um, husband turned cat, possibly. Uh, France is where they'd gone on their honeymoon, uh, where she'd had this premonition she's going to end up. I guess French exit, apparently, I didn't know this, means that when you uh, when you leave without saying goodbye, <laughs> which has its own subtext in this movie. But uh, I just wonder, you, you've said that you would put this movie in the top five of your filmmaking experiences, even though it sounds like it's a pretty tight shoot, not a huge budget, a lot on your shoulders in this movie. Just what made it such a, a positive experience? I, the cast and working with Aza, Azazel Jacobs. And again, it was one of those shoots where, you know, underfunded, over scheduled or <laughs> under scheduled. I'm not really sure how to Right, right. Um, and working really hard. And this dialogue was also in, it was, this was, this was actually maybe some of the hardest dialogue that I've had to manage in mm -hmm. my career. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it was equally hard, as hard as doing something like Dangerous Liaisons. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, very stylized. But yeah, um, I love, I love how the movie turned out. I love the whole experience of making it. It was just a joy. Yeah. Well, just the final question is, uh, I wonder if you can take us into your mindset here as we head into 2021. I don't know if you, you know, can you believe you've been doing this and doing it at such a high level for 40 years now? Uh, you know, you've reached the status where people are writing songs with you in them. I mean, <laughs> we got Uptown Funk, we got Riptide, just all of that. And uh, just in this moment, how do you feel? What are you proudest of? What do you hope to still do? Uh, you know, as as always, I don't know what will be next for me. I never am strategic. I'm never looking for a particular thing. I'm always looking for something good, something challenging, interesting, 
filmmakers, interesting material, interesting part. And, you know, that's really, I'm so grateful that I'm still working. I'm doing what I love to do. Yeah, I had always hoped and envisioned myself working as an actor, making films into old age. And it looks like, you know, looks like that's going to happen. Terrific. Well, I can't thank you enough for the movies and for doing this and just really appreciate it. Thank All you. right. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.